Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 22b, Aeneid Book 6, Lines 384 to 425. In this episode, you will see that dramatic reveals are dramatic, and you will find out that Cerberus is big. Ergi terin captum peragunt fluioque propinquant, nawita quos yain dut stigia prospexit abunda per tacitum nemus ire pedem quad vertera ripai, sic prior ad graditur dictis at quin crepat ultro, quis quis es armatus qui nostrad flumina tendis, farage quid venias, stink et comprime gressum, Umbra ric locus est, somni noctisque soporae, corpora viva nefastigia vectare carina, nec ver den me sum laetatus eontem ace pisse lacu, nec decea perithoumque, dis quam quam genitat quin victi viribus essent. Tartare ille manu custodin vincla petivit, ipsius a solio regis traxitque trementem, Qui domina ditis dalamo de ducera dorti, quae contra breviter fatest amfrisia vates, nullic insidiae tales absiste moveri, nec vim teleferunt, licet ingens janitor antro aeternum latrans ex sanguis teriat umbras, casta licet patrui servet pro serpina limen, troios aeneas pietat insignis et armis, Ad genitorem aseribi descendit ab umbras, si te nola moet tantae pietatis imago, at ram hunc, aperet ramum qui veste latebat, agnoscas. Tumidexira tum corda residunt, nec pluris, il admirans venerabile donum, fatalis virgae longo post tempora visum, cae rule advertit pupim ripaeque propinquat, in dalias animas, quae per yuga longa sedebant, de turbat, laxatque foros. Simul, acipit alveo in gentaineon. Gemuit sub pondera cumba sutilis, et multa capit remosa poludem. Tandem transfluien columes vatemque virumque, in formi limo glaucaque exponit in ulva. Kerberos, haec ingent latratu regna trifalci personat. Adverso recubans imanis in antro, cui vates horre revidens iam cola colubris, mele soporatet medicatis frugibus afam abicit. Ile, fame rabida tria gutura pandens corripit objectat quem mania terga resolvit. Fusus humi toto quingens extinditur antro, occupat aeneas aditum custode sepulto, E waditque celeri pen remeabilis undi. Therefore they continue their journey begun and approach the river. 
From there, the boatman, as he now looked out at them from the Stygian wave going through the silent grove and turning their feet to the bank, first addresses them thus with words, and he rebukes them further. Whoever you are who head toward our rivers armed, come on, say why you come, and hold your step now from that place. This is the place of shades, of sleep, and of drowsy night. It is not permitted to carry living bodies in the Stygian boat. Nor indeed was I happy that I received Alcides, as he was going on the lake, nor Theseus and Perithous, although they were born from the gods and undefeated in strength. The former sought the Tartarian guard in chains and dragged him by hand, trembling from the throne of the king himself. The latter undertook to abduct the queen of Dis from her bedchamber. The Amphrisian prophetess spoke these things briefly in reply. No such plots are here. Stop being moved. Nor do the weapons bring violence. It is permitted for the huge doorkeeper barking eternally in his cave to terrify the bloodless shades. It is permitted for chaste Proserpina to preserve her paternal uncle's threshold. Trojan Aeneas, outstanding in pietas and weapons, descends to the deep shades of Erebus to his father. If no image of such great pietas moves you, nevertheless this branch, she reveals the branch which was lying hidden in her robe, you should recognize. Then his heart, swollen from anger, settles down, nor more than this. That one, marveling at the venerable gift of the fateful stick seen after a long time, turns his dark hull and approaches the bank. He then dislodges the other souls that had been sitting through the long benches and releases the gangway. Immediately he receives huge Aeneas in the hold. The sewn-together skiff groaned under the weight and, full of cracks, took on much swamp. Finally, across the river he puts out both prophetess and man, unharmed, in the shapeless mire and gray-green marsh grass. Huge Cerberus makes these kingdoms resound with three-throated barking, lying massive in the facing cave, to whom the prophetess, seeing his necks already bristling with snakes, tosses a cake made sleep-inducing with honey and drugged fruits. That one, laying open his three gullets in ravenous hunger, snatches what was tossed and he relaxes his vast backs, poured out on the ground, and is stretched out huge in the whole cave. With the guardian buried, Aeneas occupies the entrance and swiftly escapes the bank of the Wave of No Return. Last time, Aeneas saw the spectacle of the souls trying to gain passage across the river Acheron, and as Aeneas and the civil approach, Charon gets mad because Aeneas is obviously not a dead person, and because Aeneas is armed. In his rebuke, Charon mentions two examples from classical mythology. The Theseus mentioned here is the one of Minotaur fame. He and his buddy Perithous got the great idea that they were going to visit the underworld for the purpose of abducting Proserpina, Pluto's not at all consensual bride and queen of the underworld. That didn't go well. Pluto captured them and punished them by permanently sticking their backsides to a rock that they sat on to take a rest. Because if you're going to abduct the not-at-all-consensual bride of the ruler of the land of the dead, you definitely want to stop for a lunch break before you even make it to the palace. And Alcides is a patronymic epithet for Hercules, who, as the last of his twelve labors, had to retrieve Cerberus from the underworld. He gained passage across the river, either by overpowering Charon with his super strength, because he's Hercules, or, in a variant that is so much more funny, by beating Charon in a frowning competition. Seriously, they frowned at each other until Charon yielded. And while Hercules was in the underworld, he happened to stumble upon Theseus and Perithous, still stuck to their rock in an eternal lunch break. He was able to free Theseus, but he could not do the same for Perithous. 
And by mentioning these two examples, Karen implies that Aeneas is wanting to do something similar, to steal something that doesn't belong to him. But Virgil leaves out one other well-known figure, Orpheus, which is interesting because it was from his own description of Orpheus's descent to the underworld that Virgil recycled the lines we saw in the last episode. The Sibyl then speaks up on Aeneas's behalf. Notice how Aeneas is silent for the whole exchange. As the one person present who has not immortal or been alive for almost three quarters of a millennium, and the one person in the interaction who has not been to the underworld before, Aeneas at least knows enough to be quiet and let the adults talk. Inside of this section of lines, Amphrisian refers to Amphrisos, a river in Thessaly where Apollo did a thing in his mythology. Since the Cumaean Sibyl was Apollo's prophetess, she gets his epithet. Erebus is the underworld. Aeneas is mentioned again as having pietas, twice. And you learn the Latin word for someone's uncle on their father's side. Since Proserpina was the daughter of Jupiter and Ceres, and Pluto was Jupiter's brother, he was her paternal uncle, as if her not-at-all consensual marriage to him weren't wrong enough for you. But then again, Juno was Jupiter's sister-wife, because mythology. This whole episode is also another example of the spectacles that happen around Aeneas. Virgil spends a lot of time describing interactions and places and people and giant three-headed dogs as Aeneas looks on, but Aeneas himself doesn't actually do anything. After introducing Aeneas and speaking on his behalf, the Sibyl then totally solves all of their problems by dramatically revealing the Golden Branch, which she had kept hidden in her robes for just such a plot-demanded dramatic reveal. And Virgil even puts a parenthetical stage direction into the lines, letting you know that she pulled the branch out in the most dramatic way possible, just in case you missed somehow that she had shown the branch to Charon. When Aeneas boards Charon's transport, the language and imagery of the passage emphasizes his size and the resulting stress on the boat, with Virgil calling the ferry a skiff and an alweum, the word for a hollow tub, and mentioning two words that reinforce Aeneas's size, ingentim and pondera. Aeneas is mortal and still carrying mass, so the boat creaks and takes on water, and Aeneas is oversized sitting inside of it. But almost immediately after describing Aeneas as huge in comparison to Charon and his little bathtub ferryboat, they meet Cerberus, who is huge by any standard of comparison. And Virgil makes sure to tell you that he is Engens, Imanis, Imania, and Engens, all inside of the seven lines where Cerberus makes his appearance, again all part of the spectacle. So Cerberus is big, and he's starting to get a little bristly as he notices the two mortals heading his way. The Pokemon battle music starts up, a wild Cerberus appears, and you might have gotten your hopes up for some sort of boss battle to happen. But Aeneas doesn't actually have to deal with the massive guard dog, because the Sibyl tosses out a medicated doggy treat, and with Cerberus buried, and I'm sure that Virgil meant that to be a pun, they pass unharmed and continue on their way. Next time, Aeneas will see someone he never expected to see again. Spoilers, it's totally Dido. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. Charon addresses only Aeneas and ignores the Sibyl. The Sibyl is the one who replies to Charon for Aeneas, and Aeneas doesn't speak at all. What is each person's role in this scene? Charon alludes to earlier visits to the underworld by mythological heroes. Why does he think that Aeneas is comparable to them? What notable example does he leave out? What is the significance of the Golden Branch? Why did Aeneas have to obtain it before entering the Underworld? How does Virgil emphasize the contrast between mortal Aeneas and immortal Charon? 
Virgil describes Cerberus' immense size several times in this section. Why does he do this? How does the description of Cerberus relate to the words used to describe Aeneas in relation to Charon and the ferry boat? Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete.